how I know the campus is almost is four is because Judah was born three weeks after the location launched. So I look at him and go, yeah, you're the same age as the church. So it helps me out a lot because I need a lot of help. Uh, he loves doing this game, okay, called Legos. I'll build something like this. And uh, I'll, I'll start stacking and making something. And then here's Judah's game. Ah! Every time. Do you know how frustrating it is for me to spend a lot of time making something awesome? And, and like, he'll say, Daddy, let's make an airport. I'd be like, yeah, I could do an airport. That seems, that seems doable. So we get his planes out, and we have all, like, we, I make a runway, which is just two, just a cheater's note. It's just two lines of Legos like this, so the plane can go in between them. And a tower, and then all of a sudden, he calls it Monster Judah or T-Rex Judah comes and goes, T-Rex attack, knocks the whole thing down. I'm like, dude, that was really good. <laughs> and you just ruined it. But this is the habit that Judah's in. So sometimes... He goes, when he goes to bed, sometimes he goes to bed. Uh, when he goes to bed, I'll keep the Legos out and I'll rebuild it. And I'll just look at it like, that is really good. And then the morning time comes and he runs out. Legos are built again. And I hear it crash. Like, oh, it's totally Carrie's son. That is, that is Carrie's son. But I've become really good at rebuilding things that Judah has destroyed, whether it be Legos or whether it be his toy space shuttle that has more super glue on it than it does plastic right now, anything, whatever Judah destroys, I've become really good at putting it back together. And the other day when I was putting stuff back together, I started to remember this feels a lot like what happens in Ephesians. The church is divided. Paul is talking to the Ephesian people saying, hey, Remember Paul's letters? Uh, in Christ, stop it, do better. That's, that's Paul's idea, right? Because you're in Christ, stop doing what you're doing. And so he spends this whole long message in Ephesians chapter 1 saying, here you are, here's what Christ did for you, here's your new identity. And then he turns the corner into a chapter 2, and then he starts getting into, and because you're this way, you have a whole bunch of good works that are lined up for you to do. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 where you're creating in Christ Jesus to do good things. And then he gets down to verse 11, and he starts talking about what plagues the church back then. Because we today have no idea of anything of what divisions would be, right? It, it is a total foreign concept. We don't divide, because we're past that. Or do we? We live in a very divided culture, would you say? Oh, there's political parties, there's theological lines, uh, people leave churches because of songs, coffee, weird bald teachers, uh, and, and, and various reasons. We find reasons to keep splitting and keep splitting, which sometimes is good because then we have more churches, but oftentimes a split is not necessarily a good thing. We live in a divided culture. We have a divided church. And if we're honest, if we look at the divisions, sometimes the divisions in culture are perpetuated, I practice that word, by what the church does. Because oftentimes the picture of Jesus that is given by many Christians is an us versus them mentality. It's, it's we have all it all figured out and you don't. We're in the second week of our uh, portrait series, and, and if you were here last week or if you listened online, 
It was the it was a series. It, it was kicked off by uh, Pastor Richard. But it was the idea that there is a picture of Jesus that is popular in our culture that doesn't really look like Jesus. And so our job as Christians, as those who follow Christ, those who are born again, however you say it, is to portray what Jesus actually looks like. What is Jesus for? Is Jesus for divisions? No. And so today we're going to look at Paul's words in Ephesians 2 and see how he, what he says about these divisions. We're going to pick up with where Paul, where Paul leads off, where he's saying, you shouldn't be divided. You should be, because of Christ, you should be united. And here's the deal. For Jesus, there was never an in or an out person. In fact, what made Jesus so controversial is those who were considered out, the thems, not the uses. Jesus went specifically towards the person with leprosy, the person who, the woman who was bleeding for 13 years, uh, the Samaritans. Jesus intentionally goes to the people who were far away. Why? Because the whole point is that they would come near, experience Jesus, and then be changed. This is what we're looking at today. And so today I want to look at three ways which we can see the division and the unification in the text. The first is you have the way divided, and then we have the way united, and then we have the way forward. So let's look at the way, uh, the way divided first. The first part of Ephesians, Paul's saying, this is who you are. You are, it's beautiful. If you need something to read this week, Ephesians 1, count the in hymns. What Paul is doing, he's saying, he's taking everything that that. Rome had to offer what they'd say in Caesar or in the king, in this. And he's going, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And every time you see an in him, he's combating something that's popular in culture where they said it's in something else. He goes, no, your hope's not found there. Your hope is found in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And then he gets here and, and, and to this divisions that happens, major societal divisions in this church. Husbands against wives, slaves and free, mothers and children, fathers and children, neighbors who don't bring in their trash cans on time. Anywhere that there could have been a division, Paul is addressing it. And, but to first start it, he starts by addressing the biggest one in the room, Jew versus Gentile, the biggest division that's been happening since Abraham, and it still happens today. There's Christian folks who were Jewish to start with and found Jesus, and there were people who were Gentiles, which means if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, and you found Jesus not through Judaism, but through something else, probably through Paul. And so there was this division. The Jews said, we're better because we were in for the longest time. We've been in this since Abraham. And the Gentiles came along and said, yeah, but you kind of messed it up. And so we don't need your Old Testament. We don't need the law. We don't need Moses. We don't need King David. We found Christ through Christ. And so there was this superiority complex, and it came into the church, you and you, and none of them got along. And so Paul begins by addressing these two groups. Jews didn't like Gentiles. Gentiles didn't like Jews. It's a problem that still exists today. And here's what Paul says to address the issue. Therefore, remember that you formally were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised. How did the, it, it's weird if, if you're new to uh, the faith, uh, the Jewish people were circumcised, Gentile people were not, and that's how they told the difference. And so when they said, you were called the uncircumcised, that meant 
you don't belong in the Jewish faith. It was, it was not something nice to call somebody. And so you were circumcised by the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, the Jews, Gentiles, Jews, which is done by human, to the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. So he's talking to the Gentiles here. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God and without hope and without God in the world. So the division's been laid out. Paul's saying, here's the problem. You think you're in, you think you're in, uh, but all of you are now sitting in this room and you're, you're studying Christ, but you've come at him from different angles. But the problem is you look at this and you go, but neither of you belong. That's what they're saying. You can't be here because you're a Gentile. Well, you shouldn't be here because you're Jewish. And this, this is the division that was happening. There was a certain level of pride to each of them. But Paul, is, the first one he says is, look, Gentiles, look at the words he used. You were separated. You were excluded. You were foreigners. You were without hope. Paul's reminding them, hey, before you get too big on yourself, thinking that you found the secret to life first and on your own, remember where you came from. Foreigners, excluded, separated, without hope. It's strong language, but it tells us something. Before we act like we have it all figured out, before we start casting shame on somebody else because they, because they came to Jesus in a different way than we did, what do we need to remember? At one time, you were separated. You were broken. You were foreigners. You were without help. Paul begins healing the division between the two of them by reminding one side, hey, you were broken too. And at one time, you needed this. And then he continues. This is the biggest word, the, the, one of the biggest transitions in Scripture. But now, you were separated. But now, in Christ... You who were once far away have been brought near to the, by the blood of Christ. Gentiles still love Jesus and serve Jesus. Jews still love Jesus and serve Jesus. And because of that mutual pursuit of Jesus, there is a peace that should be uniting rather than dividing. It's a peace that comes from a mutual pursuit of Christ. Different starting points, but the same ending point. Christ, pursuing Christ. And he says this, For he himself is our peace, who had made the two groups, who had made the two groups one and has destroyed the, barrier by de, by, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, which was a real thing. In about the 19 BC to about 0 BC, King Herod decided he was going to rebuild the temple. Before that, Solomon built the temple way back when. It was destroyed in 586 sometime by the Babylonians. And then King Herod came and, re- and added to what was rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah. This is a crash course in temple history. There's PhDs in this stuff. So this is very brief. Herod comes and he adds to it. And where it was, it was on the Temple Mount, so it was on top of a hill. And he took it and raised up the holy place. And then down a little bit, you have, uh, the, the, uh, there's, there's more courts. And then there's the most holy place on the high. And then he surrounded it with different colonnades and different courts for various people to worship. Uh, we have a picture. Yay, nerd time. Ready? 
For those of you who can read it, here it is. You had the outer wall, the big, the, the small line, and then inside that was a court, and then another wall, and then inside that there were various places to worship. The court of women, the chamber where they kept the wood, the court of the Nazarites, the chamber of oils and wines. Sounds like a great place. The chamber of the lepers. Don't go there. Uh, and then inside of that was another, was another wall and more separation, and then another wall, and then more steps, and then more separation, and then into the holiest place. Paul's talking about something called the dividing wall. At the very bottom, you see the beautiful gate. Outside of that was something called the sereg, which was the dividing wall. Gentiles were not allowed to go past that point. They can go as far as there. And then there were five steps, and then more steps, and then another step and a right turn, and then you get to the 12 steps. And so there were major separations. The Gentiles can only come so close. They can look over the wall and see the worship and see where God lives, but they could not enter in. In fact, it was so bad that here's, what they put, here's a sign they posted. Next slide, slide machine. How's your Greek? Mine's bad because that's in Latin. Um, that was posted... On the entrance, they found this back in the 70s. Uh, it was posted on every entrance that would take you past the Sereg. Here's what it says. No foreigner, meaning no Gentile, is to go beyond this balustrade, which I had to look up, railing, and the plaza of the temple zone. So you can't go past this line. And if you're a foreigner and you do go past this line... Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Beware. It's like the very first beware of the dog sign, right? Beware. If you pass this, you're going to die. And the Roman officials let this happen. Like, hey, this is your religion. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. So this sign hung separating the Jews from the Gentiles. And Paul picks up on this. And the dividing wall, he says... The thing that keeps everyone apart, the thing that keeps those who are pursuing Jesus to come and find Jesus and be changed by Jesus, that wall, gone. It's no longer there. It's Judah waking up in the morning, finding the wall that I've built, knocking it down, saying the thing that separates you should not ever separate you. Everybody, according to Paul, has access to Jesus. There's no division. Every single person has access to come to Jesus and be changed by Jesus. It's not that you could come to Jesus and remain the same. That never happens. It's you can come to Jesus and find new life and find new hope. Essentially what Paul is saying is this line that used to say, you cross this and you die. No, 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 no. You cross this and now you find life in Christ. This is what Paul is getting at. This is why there's no divisions. Uh, sometimes, and Paul says this, the best way to remember that this wall is gone is for you to look back and say, I'm past that wall too, which means I was once far. Now I'm being brought in. There's no more dividing. This is how I pursued Jesus. So who am I to say to this person that they aren't allowed to come to find Jesus either? 
The person you are now is different from the person you were when you found Jesus because you were allowed to see Jesus and come away changed. And because of that, we have a way united. That was the way divided. Now we have a way united. And here's how Jesus does this in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So the Jews who, said, who held the laws said, this is the way to, to find God, this is the way to find peace, this is the way to find life. Paul goes, no, 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 no. That's one of the things that were just destroyed. The law kept people away. Jesus says, come in, be changed, find me. And he says, his purpose was to create in himself One new humanity out of the two. This new humanity is what Paul is really trying to key in on in all the book of Ephesians, and not just there, but throughout his writings. In Christ, God is creating a new humanity where there is no longer dividing lines among dividing lines among dividing lines. He's saying this is a new way of thinking, a new way of living. It's a new group of people uniting in one place where all they have in common is Christ. Churches back then didn't look like churches we have today. Churches then was probably maybe these two rows meeting in a house. And they would come from various different parts of of the society. There would be slaves, there would be slave owners, there would be men, women, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, uh, citizen and non-citizen, which was a big deal in Roman days. And now they're in one room and they come from every, you wouldn't think that this would get along, but Paul is saying because they are made new in Christ, they have a new humanity and all they have in common is Jesus. They're all swimming in the same directions from different starting points. That's the goal that Paul's getting at. That's the goal that Jesus made. And he says this in verse 16. And in one body, to reconcile both of them, both of these divisions, bring them together to God through the cross, which, by which he put to death their hostility. We tend to use the cross as something that keeps people out, but Jesus says, no, 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 the cross brings people together. And it's probably hard to think thousands of years later on how this could play out in today's society. Think of groups who don't get along. Still, to this day, Jews and Palestinians, there's still division. Uh, The Republican versus Democrat, is there any division there? I mean, maybe a little bit this morning already. There was Shia versus Sunni. There's Hutu versus Tutsi. There's Baptist versus Baptist. There's Tacoma versus Seattle. There's 49ers versus Seahawks. We build our whole life around these divisions. There's groups in our world and groups in our city that have been divided for generations. This is how they were raised. And Paul takes the biggest division and throws them in the same room and says... In Christ, you too can put down your animosity. That can be abolished and you can come to pursue Jesus. And look what's next. It's not that everyone is made equal. It's not that everyone's here. He goes beyond that. Equality is great. Paul says, you guys have been made family. Look what he says in verse 19. Consequently, 
you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, which is a kingdom term, with God's people and also members of this household. You've been adopted. You're in. There's no longer, it's, it's more, it, you, you belong to each other. Your good is their good. When you slip, they slip. Everybody is family now. In verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a whole temple of the Lord. So Paul is saying there's a new temple being built. No walls to keep people out. These two groups are now one, even with their animosity towards each other. They have to learn what it's like to be uh, human again. They have to learn what it's like to get along when everything they've been told up until that point kept them apart. Remember, Paul says, the work of Christ brought you near too. So you have the Gentiles who were called, they were estranged, they were off. And then we have the Jews who felt like they were first class Christians. They were, they've been chasing this the longest. They were the ones keeping Gentiles out. They were the ones who held the Torah. And Paul says, look, you can't do that anymore. You have a family of Abraham. They've been brought in. In other places, he says, grafted in. They belong to you just as much as you belong to them. There is now one temple where God lives. It's no longer a brick and mortar temple. It's a living temple that's your body. It's filled by the Spirit. It's empowered by the Spirit. You're broken too. Christ is putting you back together again, and he's making everybody whole. If you're sitting in a room that day, if you're back in Ephesus, this is crazy stuff. This is, Paul is turning thousands of years of Roman precedents, of Jewish precedents, of Greek precedents, turning it upside down and saying, no more of this division. He goes on later to say, no more slaves or free. Husbands, love your wives, which was more controversial than wives submit. We like to talk on the submit one, but Paul says, husbands, love your wife. They were under no obligation to love their wife until then. Paul's saying, culture, get away in Christ. New humanity, this is what it looks like. And in that, we are modeled our way forward because Paul is saying that Jesus brings the two together. In a world that's made of divisions, Paul's saying there's a newness. So what the heck does the new humanity mean? It means the divisions are gone. Paul is trying to convey the point that the rest, and throughout the rest of the letter, which was the place where Christ was building this new humanity where people gather and have nothing in common but Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at. And because of this, the church was subversive to the culture around. Paul writes in other places, uh, in, in Colossians 3, he says this, Here, in the new humanity, there is no Gen- Jew or Gentile. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian or Scythian, and Scythian were a group of people that just are like a little bit above animals. He said, there's no barbarian, and there's no Scythian. There's no slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In another part of the letter, in Galatians, he says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. It's sounding familiar. There is no more male or female. Amen. (laughs) For you are all one in Christ, If you belong to Jesus, you are part of Abraham's seed and you are an heir according to the promise. Many people will look at this and say, Paul is erasing genders. He's erasing this. No, he's not. 
He's not talking about any kind of classification. He's not talking about politics. He's erasing the common divisions which kept people out. He's saying, no longer are you supposed to keep people out. Everyone is allowed to come and be changed by Jesus. The word of Christ, the life of Christ, is available to all. It's absolutely revolutionary to that culture, and it's a revolution to our culture too. Anyone can come and be changed. We like, this is something I hear all the time, I can't believe that this person loves Jesus when they voted for this person. Or they do that, or they believe this, or they don't read this, or they don't like this theologian. What do we do? We start making walls and walls and walls and walls, and that doesn't happen here. Paul says, Christ, we gather together from different areas, from different social backgrounds, from different beliefs, different political backgrounds. We gather together for one reason only, Christ. And the walls that are meant to keep people away are gone, and now we each have a view straight into the Holy of Holies saying, I can come and be changed by Jesus. Why? Because I was broken too, and now he's making me whole. And the invitation stands for everybody. Everyone has access to Jesus. My brokenness that I have looks a lot different than the brokenness that you have. But I'm not going to allow my brokenness to keep your brokenness away. We each favor our own brokenness, right? Well, this is my pet sin, so I'm okay with this. And that's your pet sin? Oh, you're out. That's gross. And it keeps people away. But my brokenness should not keep your brokenness away because we both need Jesus. Whereas before, you can only get so close. Paul's saying that the real vision of the church, if we really want to repaint what Jesus looks like, it says we are for the all and we are for the every. We are for those to come and pursue Jesus and allow the Spirit to transform them by his love and grace. Jesus does this in his own ministry, right? He, the people who were far away, he comes in. But the, actually, the 12 disciples that he chose showed this. In Matthew 9, uh, we won't read it because it's already getting late. In Matthew 9, he chooses a man named Matthew, because it's the book of Matthew. Uh, he chooses a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. For those who know, were tax collectors good people in those days? Are tax collectors, uh, sorry, uh, If you work for the IRS, you're my favorite. Uh, But tax collectors in those days were not really popular individuals. They were seen as Roman sympathizers. They, they, They sided with Rome. They took people's money. They ripped people off. Jesus goes up to one of them named Matthew, who was Jewish, working for the Roman government, and says, come follow me. And Matthew says, okay. He goes and follows Jesus. So you have one side. Uh, uh, people going along being conformed into Rome. And then, if you turn the page, he calls somebody in Matthew 10, he calls someone Simon, who's a zealot. A zealot is an individual in those days who would literally carry around a dagger in his pocket, a concealed dagger's license. They had him. He would keep him in his pocket because at any point, he wanted to be ready for the Roman, to, for the revolution against Rome. So you have a zealot who hates Rome, who's among the 12, and then you have a tax collector who essentially works for Rome. Would they get along? You can say it. 
No, not in the slightest. They would fight, they would argue. They were on different sides of the political building. It wasn't just an aisle between them. They were on polar opposites. One hated, one worked. This person would have been hated by this person. This person would have not liked this person. Yet what brought those two people together? Jesus. And they both came to Jesus and they were changed. Matthew, we don't know if he stays a tax collector. The zealot, Simon, puts down his sword because of Jesus. They were both invited in. This is the picture of the new humanity where you are drawn together with nothing in common but Jesus himself. And Jesus says this, you will know people that they follow me by the way they keep up their divisions. Is that what he says? No. First John, John 13, 35. By this, you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That means zealots still love the tax collectors. That means the people who have been born and raised in churches still love those people who are brand new to the faith. It means you who have never touched a drug in your entire life still loves the person who's coming down off heroin again. You who have all the answers loves the person who doesn't have a clue. Because what brings us together? Christ. The divisions that are between us go away. So we've built these walls for communion. And if, if you're sitting low enough, you can't see communion. Why? Because of the divisions. So today, as we remember Christ, this is what communion is a picture of. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's a picture of him breaking down the walls for us to be able to come and commune with him to be on his team, to join him in what he's doing. Today I want you to come forward, fall a line right here. Before you take communion, I want you to take a block. Put this block in your pocket, okay? Because we're not going to be able to be united until we all realize that we've also been broken too. This is owning your brokenness. And it's big. I don't expect it to stay in your pocket for long, especially those who wear skinny jeans. It'd be very uncomfortable. But when I look at this, for me, I can say, yeah, I used to be addicted to pornography. Pretty bad. That's my brokenness. And I'm going to own my part. Uh, Because when I own my part that that's where I came from, somebody else who's coming from a very similar place can also come and find Jesus. When I own my brokenness, I realize that Jesus has put me back together too and he could put those people back together as well. And they are invited to come and experience Christ. Because through his death, through his resurrection, we have access. The temple walls have been flattened. We can get right in there and see Jesus. Hebrews says that we have a high priest that is accessible to us, intercedes on our behalf. So today, as you come forward for communion, remember your brokenness. And then, as you take a piece of the bread, gluten-free, dip it in the cup. It doesn't have gluten either. You dip it in the cup. You're saying that Christ has put me back together. 
so other people can come and be put back together too. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you there is no more divisions. That you have taken out this dividing wall and that the church that is defined by divisions uh, shouldn't be. That we should be inviting to those who are far away. Welcoming to those who are broken just like us. And that dividing, that dividing walls in our hearts can be leveled to allow people to come experience you. God, we thank you for this grace that was offered to us. We thank you for the grace that's offered to those around us as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Come when you're ready.